I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading 1 Thessalonians chapters 1 through 5. Well, the whole book of 1 Thessalonians. As an introduction, this letter from Paul was probably written around 50 to 52 AD, thus being one of Paul's earliest letters. He had founded that church back on his second missionary journey. We see that in Acts chapter 17 verses 1 through 9. That was his first venture into Europe. In chapter 1, verse 1, we see that Paul was accompanied at the time of this writing by Silvanus and Timothy. We know quite a bit about Timothy, and his identity is beyond dispute. Bible scholars disagree, however, regarding the identity of Silvanus here. Most are convinced that Silvanus is Silas, and that's the Latin name as a Roman citizen, while a few believe this refers to another individual altogether. The fact is, Silas did accompany Paul and Timothy on Paul's second missionary journey, which began back in Acts chapter 15, verse 36. The mention of Timothy almost certainly identifies Silvanus as Silas to be one in the same. In chapter 1, we find Paul's commendation to the believers in Thessalonica, verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy into the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come." We see here that Paul has only good things to say about these folks. After his initial standard greeting in verse 1, he expresses his prayer for them in verses 2 through 4. His commendation of them continues through the entire first chapter, commending them for being examples in Macedonia and Achaia, we see in verse 7, and then beyond in verse 8. They had embraced Paul's ministry and teaching wholeheartedly. We see that in verses 5 through 7. And that served to validate their election, the election we see in verse 4. Notice particularly verse 10, which says this, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. The Greek form of the phrase, which delivered in that verse, is a present active participle, and that's indicating a continuous action. 
Jesus being the one delivering us. As we'll see in later portions of this epistle, this letter, uh, as a matter of fact, when we get down to chapter 5, verse 9, it says, There the wrath to come. That's undoubtedly a reference to the tribulation from which we are to be delivered, spared by Jesus Christ. When you're looking for verses that suggest pre-tribulation rapture, count this one in. Incidentally, a reference to their previous idol worship is made there in verse 9, when Paul and Silas first show up there in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9, we see in verse 4 of that passage that a great multitude of Greeks were saved. While he did experience some success on that visit among the Jews as well, it would appear that the predominant composition of believers there at the church in Thessalonica were of a Gentile background. Paul talks about his ministry style to the Thessalonians in chapter 2, verse 1. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. But even after that we had suffered before, and were shamefully entreated, as ye know at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts." For neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. Ye are witnesses in God also how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe." as ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father doth his children, that you would walk worthy of God, who hath called you into his kingdom and glory. Here in verses 1 and 2, Paul makes reference again to events surrounding his second missionary journey, his visit to Philippi just prior to arriving there in Thessalonica. There he had served some time in jail, in Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 40, we see that. The local Jewish leaders gave Paul trouble in Thessalonica as well. Nevertheless, with steadiness and consistency, Paul preached the simple truth of the gospel to them without fanfare or ulterior motive. We see that in verses 3 through 7. For those who think the ministry of the gospel is best presented in a big and loud fashion, pay close attention to these verses, especially verse 7. Paul says, But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. Paul ministered to these believers in a low-key, deliberate fashion to help build their faith. He lived a life of example before them and encouraged them to do the same when he ministered to them in person. He differentiates his ministry among them from others in verse 8 where he points out that he didn't stop with the gospel message but loved them dearly and shared with them our own souls, he says. He indicates in verse 9 that he worked at a secular trade during his stay with them in order to earn his own keep. 
He did so that his motivation might not be misinterpreted. We see that in verse 10. His relationship with them was as a father to his children, as he mentored them to walk worthy of God in verses 11 and 12. We see in verses 13 through 18 that the Jews gave Paul fits. Verse 13, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they please not God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins alway, for the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. In these verses, Paul continues to commend the faith of these Thessalonians in the church, thereby noting that the word of God is effectively working right in their midst among them. He then compares their stance for Jesus Christ to the churches in Judea, just as these Christians at Thessalonica suffer for their faith at the hand of their Gentile countrymen, so do the Judeans from the Jews, in verses 13 and 14. That leads Paul into a discussion in verses 15 through 18 concerning the ill treatment he'd received at the hand of those Jews. As a matter of fact, Paul makes some very frank statements about these Jewish leaders right here in this passage. Let's take a look at the Jewish resume from Paul's perspective in verses 15 and 16. First, he says the Jews had killed the Lord Jesus. Secondly, the Jews had killed their own prophets. Thirdly, the Jews had persecuted Paul. And then fourthly, the Jews forbade Paul to evangelize Gentiles. So does Paul have any justification to suggest that the Jewish leaders have persecuted him? Well, let's see. Paul had been run out of Damascus in Acts chapter 9 and Jerusalem, and that was by his own people shortly after his salvation experience. His message was rejected, and he had to make a hasty exit from Pisidia, Antioch, in Acts chapter 13. At Iconium, the Jews stirred up the people against Paul and Barnabas and ultimately forced them out in Acts chapter 14. These angry Jews then went to Lystra to rile those folks up, which led to Paul's stoning and being left for dead in Acts chapter 14, verse 19. And it didn't stop there. The Jews continued to plague the missionary band into the second journey, specifically at Thessalonica, again resulting in Paul's exit in Acts chapter 17. Even now, as Paul writes from Corinth, a united attack has been mounted against him by the city's Jewish residents, Acts chapter 18. All in all, I'd say Paul's expressing his difficulties with Jews quite mildly. So when Paul explains why he hasn't been back to visit more often, he concludes in verse 18, Wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. We see Paul talking about his crown of rejoicing in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 2. Verse 19, 
For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. Paul wants to go see these folks. In verses 19 and 20, Paul indicates that the very fact that they have salvation in Christ because of his ministry among them is the basis for a crown he expects to receive at the judgment seat of Christ. He calls that crown a crown of rejoicing for faithfulness in ministry. If you'd like to read more about these crowns awarded at the judgment seat of Christ, uh, look at my notes on 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. We then come to chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 1. Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone, and sent Timothy our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith, that no man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and you know... For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. But now when Timothy came from you unto us, and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, and that ye have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us, as we also to see you, therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith." For now we live, if ye stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God again for you? For all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God. Night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another, and toward all men, even as we do toward you, to the end that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. In this chapter, Paul expresses concern regarding their ability to withstand persecution. Paul stayed in Athens, Acts chapter 17, while sending Timothy to minister to the Thessalonians in verses 1 and 2 of this passage, we see that. He did so when he could no longer forbear, he says. That phrase indicates that he simply could no longer forbear without knowledge of how the Thessalonians were holding up under persecution. And what about these persecutions? In verses 3 and 4, Paul explains that these persecutions are just part of a contemporary life within the social system, the same persecution that he warned them about when he ministered among them. Notice what he says in verse 5. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. After getting a positive report back from Timothy on the spiritual state of the people in the church there, verse 6, Paul commends them on their faithfulness. That faithfulness has brought him comfort. We see that in verse 7. Comfort to the point of enthusiasm where he declares in verse 8 that now he can really live, in other words, be comforted in life, by knowing of their sound spiritual welfare. Paul then outlines the prayer that he offers for them as he has the assurance that they are enduring under this persecution. His prayer in verses 10 and 11 
that he'd be able to see them again in person. And in verse 12, that the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another as well as to others. And then in verse 13, the prayer continues, that God may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God. Paul's referencing lifestyle before the world with this comment, the comment unblameable. That comes from the Greek word that's used also in chapter 2, verse 10, to describe Paul's own above-reproach conduct among them while he was there. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, Paul admonishes them to live right before the world. Verse 1, Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any manner, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. For God hath not called us into uncleanness, but into holiness. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God." who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed ye do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more, and that ye study to be quiet, and to do your own business, and to work with your own hands, as we commanded you, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, and that you may have lack of nothing. Now listen, there are standards of conduct that should be obvious to believers. Paul indicates that he'd preached to these people when he was there in verses 1 and 2. We know from Bible references and secular history that Roman Greek society basked in moral depravity during that period of time. If you're looking for a commentary on first century practices, then look at these verses in chapter 4, verses 3, 4, and 5. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should now to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. As extra-biblical history substantiates, Paul indicates that the Roman Greek society of the first century was quite hedonistic, even by contemporary standards. Paul goes on to commend them for the love they demonstrate toward the brethren, and he encourages them to maintain a good testimony before the lost in their conduct and work ethic. These first eight verses deal specifically with sexual immorality. A distinction of context should be made here regarding the usage of the word sanctification in verses 3 and 4. While sanctification can sometimes refer to our position in Christ, in other words, set apart for heaven, Sanctify means set apart. In this context, Paul is referring to lifestyle. For clear perspective on the distinction and the usage of the word, then look at the notes that I've written in the pink box to the right of the page here. It's called the different aspects of sanctification. The Greek word for fornication there is pornea, and that means any kind of sexual immorality. The phrase lust of concupiscence means passion of lust. 
Greek and Roman culture each exploited sexual pleasures beyond the imagination of most people. Thessalonica was right there in the midst of a culture that practiced a level of immorality that was reprehensible to Jewish thought. After salvation, Paul mandates and says, This is the will of God. What is that? That cultural practices be abandoned in lieu of honoring God with one's personal conduct. While sanctified conduct does refer to being God-honoring in all aspects of one's Christian life, Paul specifically deals with the abstinence from fornication beginning with verse 3 and going all the way down through verse 8. The word fornication, as I mentioned earlier, the Greek word pornea, is seen in verse 5, the term lust of concupiscence, the Greek being epithemia and pathos, uh, meaning a passionate lust, is seen in verse 5. The word uncleanness here comes from the Greek word ekatharsia, that's seen in verse 7. All three of these words support the context of unacceptable sexual conduct. But what about verse 6? Well, to stay in the context of the passage, that verse specifically addresses fornication as well when he writes that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter. The Greek definite article is used before the word matter there in the verse. Therefore, the matter specifically addresses defrauding one's fellow Christian in fornication as in stealing the virginity of another's future wife or taking unacceptable liberties with another's current wife. Verse 8 makes it clear that such a violation is against God himself. Paul does a segue in verse 9 when he says, As touching brotherly love. That's a reference to its introduction, that concept, in verse 6. Verses 9 through 12 contain general practices of being a good brother in Christ. Paul points out here that this practice should extend outside the church of Thessalonica and should include all believers with whom they have conduct. In other words, all up into Macedonia as well. Then we have a rapture passage in verses 13 through 18 of chapter 4. Verse 13, But I will not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord." Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, understand this. The rapture is not the second coming of Christ. And the second coming of Christ is not the rapture. We who are pre-tribulation rapturists believe that the actual return of Christ in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, occurs after the seven years known as the tribulation period. The event to which Paul refers here is commonly referred to as the rapture. The pre-tribulation rapture position holds that the rapture takes place prior to the seven years of tribulation. By the way, this word rapture comes from a Latin word, raptus, which means to carry away. It's a pretty good description of what happens in this passage. Notice that we meet the Lord in the air. He doesn't actually touch down to earth at that time. Paul outlines the rapture again to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51-58. through 58. Now, this is important. 
All of the Old Testament prophecies concerning Christ's return point to the return of Christ to the earth at the end of the tribulation, not this rapture. Therefore, not a single prophecy must be fulfilled prior to the rapture of believers. It could happen actually today. That's why we refer to the rapture as imminent, meaning that it could happen at any time. As a matter of fact, Paul believed that it could have happened while he was still living. We know this from the wording of verse 15 when he says that, We which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord. He uses the plural personal pronoun we again in verse 17. Obviously, Paul counted himself as possibly among the living at the time of the rapture. In other words, get ready and stay ready for the rapture. Now, I've uh, got a chart, a prophecy timeline, that I've used several places in the notes on BibleTrack.org. You'll find it on this page, the written notes, and you'll also probably want to read Matthew chapter 24, uh, where it's also parallel of Mark 13, Luke 21. Look at my notes on that passage to get a complete overview of this prophecy timeline. As you can see in verse 13, the primary concern is to comfort the Thessalonians regarding those who've died already. He refers to them when he says that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. When we know a loved one has received Christ as Savior, in other words, been born again, we're confident that they're with Christ already. As a matter of fact, verse 14 tells us that when we accept the resurrection of Jesus, we ought to be confident that those who've passed on before us will God bring with him at the time of the rapture that we're talking about here of believers. In verse 15, he assures his readers that those alive at the rapture will not, the word used in the King James is prevent, which comes from Greek word which means go before, those who've already passed on. We see in verse 16 that the rapture is a spectacular event that takes place in the twinkling of an eye, according to 1 Corinthians 15:52. We see a phrase in verse 16 which says, The dead in Christ shall rise first. That must be reconciled, by the way, with verse 14, which says, Will God bring with him? In fact, those saints who have passed away will be accompanying Jesus at the rapture. The Greek word for rise in verse 16 is anistemi, which means literally to cause to stand, to raise up. In other words, at the rapture, those who have already passed away in Christ are the first to receive their glorified heavenly bodies. Two facts should be noted in verse 17. First, we meet the Lord in the air, means in the clouds. And secondly, from that point forward, we are with the Lord forever. Of course, verse 18 says that these are comforting words, especially for those who have been undergoing this tribulation. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, Paul admonishes his readers to be ready for the rapture, verse 1. But at the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. 
But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together, and edify one another, even as also ye do. Paul has just described the rapture at the end of chapter 4. Now he's warning us to be ready for the rapture. We saw in chapter 4 that no signs necessarily precede the rapture. It'll be a complete surprise. Paul's admonition here is to be continually ready for this event. He describes it as a woman going into labor in verse 3. How descriptive. With our first child, we went to bed on Tuesday night knowing that our son could be born at any time. But we were surprised shortly after 5 a.m. the next morning when we found it necessary to head for the hospital for the big event, an event which took place that afternoon at 2.32. Had I known the night before, I would have gone to bed earlier. As believers, we are to be constantly prepared for the rapture, not like the lost, the lost people who are equated here to be people in drunken stupors in verse 7. As a matter of fact, Paul uses the word sober, he used it in verse 6 and again in verse 8, the Greek word nepho. And he uses that to describe those who are prepared. Technically, nepho refers to one who's free from the influences of alcohol, but it's often used figuratively to identify one whose judgment ability is clear, as is the case here. There's a contrast here between light and darkness. The children of light of verse 5 are anticipating the rapture, while the rest are compared to those who are drunken or sleeping. Then we have a verse packed with doctrinal implications. That's verse 9. It says, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to properly understand this verse, it's important to recognize the context. The wrath spoken of here points to the difficulties that will be experienced by the inhabitants of the tribulation. We saw it also in chapter 1, verse 10. This verse implies that saved people will not need to endure these difficulties. In other words, it says, not appointed us to wrath. And why? Because we will have been raptured prior to these events. In other words, a pre-tribulation rapture. Now, the phrase that we find here, day of the Lord, in verse 2, it needs some clarification. The Greek noun for day is hemera. This word is used in Scripture in at least three different contexts. Sometimes it's a 24-hour period of time. Sometimes it's used to describe the daylight portion of a 24-hour day. And sometimes it's used figuratively to describe an extended period of time. You know, like we say even today, back in my day. Well, the day of the Lord in verse 2 identifies, just like that, an extended period of time. That's obvious from context. And we know that is the tribulation of Revelation chapters 6 through 19. It neither specifies the rapture nor the second coming of Christ, but instead refers to the period of time sandwiched between those two events. Let's look at the entire verse, verse 2. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Now the rapture is all good. The tribulation, by the way, is all bad. Some portions much worse than others. Forget Robin Hood, a thief is always bad. The destructive events of the thief aspect of the tribulation, that's the reference here. In other words, the destruction, the death, and the misery. 
Now, verse 10 might be easily misunderstood. Is this wake and sleep here, is it literal or is it figurative? Well, the short answer is figurative. Now for the explanation. We saw in this passage that sober in verses 6 and 8 identifies people whose minds are clear and they're anticipating the rapture. On the other hand, the night, the description of the conduct of the night people, of verses 4, 5, and 7, that represents those who will be caught by surprise at the rapture. So first in verse 10, we see a four-word statement about the significance of the death of Jesus on the cross when Paul says, who died for us? As a matter of fact, with 1 Thessalonians, perhaps being Paul's first epistle, this may be the first mentioned by Paul of Christ's substitutionary death on the cross. Then we have three Greek subjunctive verbs. The first two are wake and sleep, and they're preceded by the Greek word ete, which is the Greek word for weather. Moreover, they're both in the present tense, indicating continuing action in the Greek. Therefore, the exact sense of the usage is this. Whether we may be in an awakened condition or whether we may be in a sleeping condition. In other words, the subjunctive, the whether we may be. The result is to be found in the verb live. That's also in the Greek subjunctive mode, but unlike wake and sleep, the tense there is aorist, meaning action taken at a point in time, not a continuous action. Therefore, live refers to a single event here, and that single event is the rapture. So putting it all together, here's the sense of verse 10. Christ died for us. That being the case, both those believers who are living in a state of readiness for the rapture and those believers who are not living in a state of readiness for the rapture will be raptured when the event of 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17 takes place. Having trusted Jesus Christ as one Savior is the condition for salvation, not the state of preparedness when Jesus raptures believers. Verse 11 complements verse 10. We see the security of the believer in the assurance that is to be found in verse 10. Christians will be raptured, period, ready or not. Use this truth to comfort one another. Paul closes out 1 Thessalonians with uh, some pointers on being ready for the rapture, beginning with verse 12. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you, and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the Spirit, despise not prophesyings. Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with an holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. So how are God's children expected to demonstrate that they're not like the unsaved children of the night? 
These verses show us the readiness of believers who are anticipating Christ's big catching away event. They're just plain old good neighbors. We see a series of rapid-fire admonitions on living a life acceptable before God. All of them make for really, really good preaching. In verses 12 and 13, we're commanded to honor our local spiritual leadership. Verse 14 actually has four commands. First, to warn those who are unruly, meaning rebels or troublemakers. Secondly, comfort the feeble-minded, meaning discouraged people. Thirdly, support means to stick with the weak, meaning the spiritually immature. And lastly, be patient or long-suffering, having a long fuse toward all. Verse 15 says, don't look to get even with those who've wronged you. Verse 16, rejoice evermore. I mean, do you really need an explanation for that? Verse 17, pray without ceasing. In other words, a conversational relationship with God all the time. Now, Paul wrote in his letter to the Colossians, in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, he says this, Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. In verse 18, always thankful, knowing that God is in control. In verses 19 to 21, we're encouraged to let the Holy Spirit manifest itself, in verse 19, through the manifestation of the spiritual gift of prophecy, in verse 20, but prove the validity of such prophecies and embrace those that are valid. If you want to know more about that, read my notes on 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and 1 Corinthians chapter 14. In verses 22 through 24, we have the following admonition. Abstain from all appearance of evil resulting in a lifestyle that is blameless in spirit, soul, and body. That's what he means here by using the word sanctify, which means set apart. By naming the three parts of man, he obviously intends to convey the thoroughness of this sanctification. You'll notice that the King James Version adds the words in italics, and I pray God, in order to make a complete sentence in the English. The optative mode of the word kept, that expresses a wish. In other words, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. The King James Version simply uses the phrase, and I pray God, to formulate that expression of a wish. In other words, Paul tells them to abstain in verse 22. God will help them do so by setting them apart in verse 23, and we can depend on God's faithfulness to do so in verse 24. In verse 25, pray for Paul. And then in verse 26, we have instructions for greeting brethren in Christ. What is this holy kiss, anyway? It's not unique to just this passage. Look where it's uh, found otherwise. It's found in Romans chapter 16, verse 16, where it says, Salute one another with an holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 20, it says, All the brethren greet you. Greet ye one another with an holy kiss. In 2 Corinthians thirteen twelve, it says, Greet one another with an holy kiss. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 14, greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. Paul intends that the greeting of brothers and sisters in Christ be similar to the greeting of family members. And finally, Paul concludes his letter by decreeing that it should be read to all the believers. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. 
thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walton.